So uh, we've been talking about unseen realm, and uh, one of the things that happens in the unseen and does not manifest till much later is this idea of things that we sow that reap a harvest. And um, I think there's a phrase that goes this way, that there's a, there's a forest in an acorn. And so um, I think it was Michelangelo who once said that uh, he saw an angel in the marble and carved until he set it free. And so there is this idea of you give someone a chunk of marble and you don't know what it might turn out to be. And then he begins to carve it because he saw an angel in the marble and he set it free. Or you take an acorn and it looks so tiny and yet in an acorn is a forest because an acorn gives birth to a tree which gives birth to many acorns and that's how forests are formed. And so there is this unseen realm that just um, gestates within us but it starts with the idea of a seed that we plant that at some point manifests. And if you go to Galatians chapter 6 verse 7 and 8 God puts it this way. He says, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. What a man sows, he will reap. If you sow to the flesh, you reap corruption, you reap ruin, you reap destruction. If you sow to the spirit, you reap life. And so, the Bible indicates again and again and again that there are two destinations for seed and there are two harvests. There are two destinations for seed And there are two harvests. And so when it says sowing to the flesh, it means if I sow into the traditions of men, if I sow into the patterns of the world, if I sow into sin, if I sow into desire outside of God, then it will result in decay, it will result in corruption, it will result in loss. But then I can also sow to the Spirit And if I sow to the Spirit, as in if I sow righteousness, if I sow principles from the Word, if I sow what I hear Him say, if I sow His ways, then it results in abundant life. And what does abundant life look like? looks like shalom plus rest plus vision plus profit. That's what abundant life looks like. Abundant life is this mixture of shalom of wholeness, of rest, where there's very little flailing, of vision, so that a people don't perish, of profit or increase. It captures the essence of what God said to Adam when he said, multiply, replenish, subdue. That's what abundant life looks like. And what we don't realize is that each of us is a carrier of seed. And you're always sowing, unknowingly or knowingly. You're always sowing. You're a carrier of seed. Every day of your life, you are sowing. Either knowingly or unknowingly, you are sowing. And you're a carrier of seed. Very often, the tongue is the spade. The tongue is the spade. And your words are seed. Very often, the tongue is the spade. And your words are seed. Proverbs 18.21 talks about how a man shall live by what he speaks. He either speaks death or he speaks life. And based on how he speaks, he eats. So your tongue is your spade. And your words 
a seed that you sow. Or as it says in Proverbs 23 verse 7, as a man thinks, so is he. So in that sense, your thoughts and attitudes are seed that you plant knowingly or unknowingly. Throughout the day, we are doing this knowingly or unknowingly. If we don't put it into words, we put it into thoughts, and our thoughts then begin to shape our attitude. I know you've all either heard this or read this, but sow a thought and you will reap an action. Sow a thought often enough and it always reaps an action. Sow an action long enough and it will always reap a habit. Sow a habit long enough and it will always reap a character. Sow a character long enough and you will always reap a destiny. Eddie used to say, a man of choices is a man of destiny. As in the choices you make with the thoughts and the actions and the habits that you cultivate is what causes you then to reap a destiny. So I am the way I am today because of the things that I have sown. And I didn't mean that in a positive way. I, I meant if there are negative ways in my life today, they are the result of what I have sown. And there are positive things too, but when I just said it, I meant, gosh man, many of us could be so different if we had been taught how to sow right. And the thing is, guys, every seed has its body. Every seed has its own body. First Corinthians 15.38 says that every seed has its own body. As in it produces different things. I mean, I, now that TNT market is right under my home, I occasionally venture into TNT. It's a scary place. But I'm fascinated by just the apples there, man. Like, you would think that there's an apple seed and it brings apples. No, there's, there's pink lady, there's granny, there's red delicious, there is golden. There is even something called envy. And those are really good eh? and the most expensive. If that had dropped on Isaac Newton's head, we wouldn't have had the law of gravity because it would have killed him. Because it's that big eh? and super expensive. But if an apple can produce six different varieties, and then there's the most expensive one, the iPhone. But, but that's a whole different story. Uh, it was a little funny. You could have at least grinned. Okay, it was corny. Okay, moving on. So I'd planned that so elaborately for the last 20 minutes and got nothing for it. Okay, moving on. So every seed has a body, it produces something. And therefore, guys, here's the thing. Every time you sow a thought, every time you sow words, every time you sow an attitude that comes from God, it will produce an amazing, bountiful harvest. By the same token, every time you sow something to the flesh, as in the traditions of men, Sin, pleasing the desires of the body that are outside of God, or um, human philosophies and so on, every time you sow it, you will reap ruin, corruption, loss. And the Bible puts it simply this way. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. It then goes to say that breakthrough or break-ins, break-ins as in when Satan breaks in, or breakthroughs as in when you break out into the things of God, 
breakthroughs and break-ins happen through what you sow, through the seed that you sow. You can either sow yourself into problems or you can sow yourself out of problems. I would go so far as to say this in a way that sounds ungodly. Some of the situations that I am in, I can get out of without even praying by sowing the right seed. Meaning, it's okay if you prayed for it, but some of it you can get out of even without praying because you're inserting a principle of God that can get you out. By the same token, I can also get into situations uh, without, uh, um, uh, without the devil's help. You know, one of the things God desired, can we remove him from the overhead? There's only so much of Chad I can handle. Thanks, Ryan. (laughs) Oh, he's back. Thanks. I got to spend three days with him starting tomorrow. Guys, uh, yeah, I can handle that. Guys, God God had this idea of divine self-governance. And what he means by divine self-governance, and that's what he really desired for Israel. He He said, hey, can you self-govern yourself? I'll give you a set of principles. You don't need a king or a president or a prime minister. Can you self-govern yourself based on the set of principles that I derive from my nature that you can participate in? That was his intent. Self-governance. Subin would be such a happy dad if his son Daniel could learn at an early age how to self-govern himself in the ways of God and in the ways of his parents without the need for a stick or a reward because that is the way one was supposed to live. That is why God put his spirit within us. He says it in Ezekiel and he says it again in the New Testament where he says, I replace the heart of stone with the heart of flesh so that you may know my laws. No one will have to teach them to you. They'll be written on your heart and mind. And so one of the ways we can enter into this whole idea of divine self-governance is by determining what do I sow so that I get a godly harvest in my life. And the great thing about a godly harvest is every time you have a godly harvest, others benefit from it. And then the flip side is every time you have an ungodly harvest, people are affected. When you have a godly harvest, people people benefit When you have an ungodly harvest, people are affected. None of the things that I do in my life that are ungodly will uh, not translate into this church. Everything that I do that is ungodly will affect the church. And you would think, well, then you're of the pastor, so naturally. No, what about Achan? Achan at at I. Israel lost the battle because of Achan. This whole thing called the family is not some utopian idea in the head of God. This was, in his mind, we are actually limbs connected together. He really thinks you're a part of my life and I'm a part of your life and we are a part of Christ's life and Christ is a part of God's life. He thinks like this. Any questions before we go on? So many things in life you can weed out 
or garden in your life by following these simple principles. You can either weed it out or garden so that your landscape looks so different. And we'll talk about that now. Any questions? I hope this church won't be uh, a bunch of Christians who are on either extreme because churches usually post themselves on two extremes where it's super legalistic. And by legalistic, I mean, what did I do wrong? Or the other end, which is super cheap grace, which is, how can I, uh, there's, um, wrong, wrong doesn't matter. These are the two extremes that churches find themselves in. Either, what did I do wrong? What's God going to do? Uh, what opening have I given the devil? How is it going to end now? So that's one extreme. The other extreme is, wrong is nothing. Because the grace of God covers everything. Both are extreme. I pray that we land somewhere in the middle where we understand that what you sow, you reap. And we also understand that grace is poured out on me when I have done wrong. That it's not one or the other. It's both operating together. Both have to be held in tension. They are not contradictory. That I do sow what I reap. But thank God I don't reap all that I sow because of the grace of God that just comes in sometimes like a whirlwind and just sweeps the seeds away or comes in like amazing rain and produces a crop that I haven't worked hard enough to harvest. That is the idea of grace. Either it removes that which is harmful or adds that which I have not earned. But any of these extremes uh, will paralyze us. One of the things I like doing is uh, whenever things go wrong in my life, before I pray, I'd like to find out if there's anything that I can sow that will either correct it or anything I can weed out so that it doesn't become a tear that will be indistinguishable from the wheat. So it's good to ask these questions early before you even pray. And then you can pray and ask God to help you. But it's a great method. We do it in every other area of life. For too long, the church has told us that God is so gracious, we don't need to do this. Or the church has told us, God's going to punish you because you did this. It's one or the other. Ministries are based on these. You either have a ministry that says, if you don't get rid of these roots, you're finished. Or you have ministries that say, oh, don't worry about it, grace covers everything. It's neither, it's both. One of the things I love about the New Testament is when it says, God does not reckon sins against us. Every time I go to him, a pastor may reckon your sin as you come up for prayer saying, I know what she has done, da 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 da. So God doesn't reckon your sins first. He sees you with grace and then he deals with your sin. He doesn't see your sin first and then deal with your situation. Very different God, eh? Any questions before we go on? Whenever there are situations in my life that um, I think um, I need help with, 
the first thing I check is, is there anything I can weed out so that the situation will not continue? Or is there anything I can sow so that this situation will mm, perpetuate profitably? And so many times things end so easily without prayer because uh, I find out what needs to be found out. And the way you find it out is by asking God or by just sometimes examining your life. Husbands and wives do this. we got zero problem. Usually wives are more inscrutable than God. And yet, husbands will go through a list of things that they think could be the reason why their wife is upset. And nine out of ten times they get it right because they fix all the things that they went through. And everything is okay. Much more so with God who is absolutely um, um, readable. He's not inscrutable. He's not nebulous. He doesn't speak in riddles. So when, uh, I'm going to call them carnal seeds, as in seeds of the flesh, or seeds that bring out a harvest that is corrupt, or that is, uh, that'll result in loss or decay. And we all have them, eh? There's nobody here who doesn't have them. We have them in different areas. I have, when I was going through this, when I was writing down this list, I was thinking to myself, my God, you've had all of them at some point in your life. So all of them are... Uh, present in this room in different capacities. The thing is to make sure that we get rid of them. So when carnal seeds are sown, the great thing is God mitigates as in he steps in and prevents it from becoming the kind of harvest that it could become. God mitigates, God intervenes, God weeds out, and God smothers the harvest. So when carnal seeds are sown, the God of grace Mitigates, intervenes, uh, smothers the seed, and weeds it out before it can uh, get deep roots and produce uh, toxic harvest. So God is anyways working at it. If we were to actually reap everything we sowed, we'd be dead by now. Thank God that's not the way it works. Because he's an amazing gardener and he takes... Ownership of his garden, meaning you, me. Satan, on the other hand, contaminates, plants, supplies, seed, through, I'm talking about carnal seed, through friends, Systems of the world through uh, giving you your sensual desires or giving you a way to satisfy them through the bait of immediate gratification because that is something he loves providing. If you can covet or desire something or lust after something, uh, the devil has uh, a desire to provide you what you want gratification in. Or he contaminates plants and supplies carnal seed through your past experiences, 
through pain, through fear, where knowing that you have had a traumatic experience, knowing that you were betrayed, knowing that trust was broken, knowing that you were hurt, now he supplies you seed that will perpetuate that um, carnality. And by carnality, all I mean is that which is not of the spirit and that will bring more loss, more decay, and more corruption, and nothing that will give you life. Satan provides that. And he does it through friends, it does it through the systems of the world, does it through human philosophies, does it through our parents, does it through sometimes churches. So what happens is once these seeds are planted, they can become intertwined, as in more than one seed, intertwined and deeply rooted. And once they are deeply rooted, that's when they manifest. So something like, say, jealousy. Let's assume I'm jealous. And so let's assume instead of uh, combating it or countering it with other ways that the Spirit provides, I keep walking that path of jealousy. It gets to a point where Jealousy can combine with envy, envy can combine with bitterness, can combine with unforgiveness. And now they are intertwined and they get deeply rooted because I'm beginning to delve into it, dive into it, not pull myself out of it. And as it gets deeply rooted, it begins to manifest. As in, you will begin to see it in my life. The thing with seed is, like I said, the forest is in the acorn. It has to fall to the ground. It takes time to develop. And that is when you and I can call out to the father and say, Father, I'm your son, I'm your daughter. I'm struggling with this. Help me. What do you think David would do in the Psalms? What was one of the reasons he wrote the Psalms? He didn't write it so that we read it in the Bible later. He wrote it because he wanted to get it out of his system. Oh God, look at what they have done to me. I want them to suffer. I want this to happen to them. I want that to happen to them. But, oh God, you are good. It was this lament that he would write that would turn from lament and anger to uh, love and purity and worship. So, once it gets deeply rooted, it begins to manifest. The good news is that you don't have to let the roots develop. The good news is you don't have to let the roots develop. And all of us know as it begins to develop. Eh? Like, I know when I am struggling with a certain way of thinking or I'm struggling with um, an issue. I know it. And I can either try to suppress it and say, uh, oh, Jesus, take it away, or I can have a conversation with God so that he can help me weed it out. My God, he's so good at it. He's so good at it. To weed it out. I remember telling the church, the story long ago where I was really um, bitter about this other pastor who I thought was getting unnecessary accolades even though I knew his life was hollow. I was sitting there thinking to myself, Father, how can you do this? You know the guy's life. And he's sitting there and being such a hypocrite and you're doing nothing. And I was so bitter and jealous about what was happening with him. And I was complaining to the Lord about it. The next morning... At about 8 o'clock, God wakes me up, because that's when he wakes me up. Uh, <laughs> and, he, <laughs> and, he, <laughs> and he wakes me up and he says, uh, I've got something exciting to show you in the Bible. And I'm thinking to myself, some great revelation is going to come my way. And uh, that this will be a profound moment in my life. Where God will show me the future. So I said, yes, Lord. And then he gives me this particular chapter to, 
go read and I'm thinking to myself, hallelujah. And I go read it and it's this passage where it says, and um, the women came out and sang, Saul has killed thousands, David has killed 10,000 and Saul felt jealous. And I'm thinking to myself, this is what you woke me up for? You woke me up because you wanted to correct me. And yet, that is the kind of father we have who is willing to wake you up excitedly because he wants to remove weeds from your life so that you can be the garden he wants you to be. I was deeply thankful, little disappointed, but deeply thankful for his willingness to do that with me. So the good news is he can weed it out. The bad news is that strongholds, once they develop, once things get intertwined and deeply rooted, they become strongholds. And once strongholds develop, they become the hideout of the demonic. Demons hide in strongholds. Let me give you an example. Let's assume you have a room in a house, and in that room there's nothing. And then you begin to stack these wooden crates, one after the other. Every time you get a crate or a cardboard box, you stack it in the room, and it just begins to pile up. And then one day, you find that the snake has been able to get into the room. And now you can't catch the snake because every time you go and try to get that snake, it goes behind the cardboard boxes or slithers under a wooden crate. Now, if the room was empty, it would be easy to get that snake. But now that you have these wooden crates and cardboard boxes that I've collected, every time you want to go grab that snake or kill it, the snake disappears behind a crate or disappears behind these cardboard boxes that have been stacked there for now months on end. The only way now that you can get to that snake and kill it without being harmed is by removing the cardboard boxes and the wooden crates. This is what is meant when I say that if these seed that we sow are allowed to become strongholds, then they become places that the demonic can hide. Any questions? Um, through the simple word. At the end of the day, every stronghold is dismantled through the word and the spirit. Every stronghold is dismantled by the word and the spirit. The weapons that we fight with are not carnal, but are spiritual for the pulling down of strongholds. And what are strongholds? Reasonings, thoughts, arguments, imaginations, and every lofty thing that raises itself up against the knowledge of God to take them captive and bring them into submission to the Lord. How do you do it? Only with the word. And the spirit of God begins to work with the word. As in when I read that passage, it was not that I didn't know the passage, but in that passage what happens immediately after Saul becomes jealous is that the distressing spirit that had already left because David had played the harp returns the very next day. And I'm reading that word thinking, Father, the last thing I want to do is waste my time getting jealous of someone who is perhaps faithful to you. And the last thing I want to do is get jealous and have distressing spirits come into my life. No, thank you. It's not worth it. And this is a person I don't even know well. The amount of time we waste on people we don't know. That didn't come out right, but you know what I mean. So guys, learn the mechanics. Um, 
of how to go about this. And this list is by no means conclusive. You can keep adding to this list. If you read the book of Proverbs, you'll find <laughs> hundreds of cause and effect um, equations where sow this, reap this, sow this, reap this. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Isaiah, they have so many different equations like this. Life can become just principle-based and you can use faith for other things. Learn it because once you do, God gives you the keys for weeding your life and watering it, both your physical life and your spiritual life. Any questions? Because I want to go into the uh, seeds itself. Today, we'll only be able to do the carnal seeds and then next Sunday we'll do the life seeds. Any questions? Okay. So, first one is doing nothing. Doing nothing. Doing nothing is a seed. Doing nothing is the seed for decay or deterioration. Doing nothing is the seed for, do, for decay or things deteriorating. Doing nothing. Doing nothing unless commanded. The only time you do nothing is God tells you to do nothing. As when he told Joshua, I don't want you to do anything. I just want you to walk around the city once and then go do whatever soldiers do after they walk. And uh, doing nothing unless commanded is the seed for decay and deterioration. Go to Ecclesiastes 10.18. Sometimes what I read might depend on the version. So I'll try to give you the version. Ecclesiastes 10.18. Ecclesiastes 10. If a man is lazy, the rafters sag. If his hands are idle, the house leaks. If a man is lazy, the rafters sag. If his hands are idle, the house leaks. Sometimes we do nothing just based on the simple thing that God will take care of it. Unless God has told me to do nothing, I must do what I have been initially told to and continue with it. Otherwise, it ends up with the rafters sagging and things decaying or deteriorating. It doesn't matter whether it's with regard to a job or whether it's regard to marriage or whether it's regard to something spiritual. I must do what I was last told to do and continue doing it till God gives me something new. Just this morning I was going over uh, what God has asked me to do uh, at the beginning of the year just wanted to go over it because I haven't received any new directions. So I just have to keep doing what I was told at the beginning of the year. Next one. Uh, after three, I'll, I'll go over three and then I'll stop and you can ask questions. Next one, gossip. Gossip is a seed for strife. Gossip is a seed for strife. Gossip is a seed for strife. What does gossip look like? Gossip looks like defaming someone, uh, spreading rumors, being, a, being someone who mocks someone behind their back, uh, speaking ill of someone. It's not a woman thing, it's a man thing too. Uh, I used to think only women do that, but it's so not true. Gossip is the seed for strife. 
One of the ways you can dismiss strife from a place is by casting out the scoffer. The Bible says in Proverbs 21 verse 9 that throw out the scoffer, or verse 10, throw out the scoffer and strife will end. Sometimes the easiest way to cause strife in any situation to end is to dismiss the scoffer or the mocker. One who scoffs. And who is one who scoffs? In Proverbs 22, it says, a scoffer is a proud and arrogant man. And so, once you dismiss the scoffer, strife ends. But gossip is the seed for strife. So one of the ways you can end strife in your life is by ending gossip. Proverbs 18, verse 8. Proverbs 18, verse 8. Proverbs 18, verse 8. The words of a gossip are like choice morsels. They go down to a man's inmost being. And there's another proverb which talks about dismissing uh, the gossiper or the um, scoffer and the strifle. And uh, one of the things I've noticed about Chad is he's a guy who knows a whole lot of pastors. He knows their inside and their outside. He knows what they actually do in their churches and what he doesn't. But you'll never hear him either encouraging gossip about somebody else or talking about them even though he knows exactly what's happening. I found that quite fascinating because when I find out a little about someone, I have to go tell someone, do you know what happened? But he has this ability to know a whole lot of information and not talk about it. It Create strife, eh? Strife and discord. Third one, fear is a seed for insecurity and double-mindedness. Fear is the seed for insecurity and double-mindedness. It's in James chapter 1. Verses 4 to 6. Insecurity and double-mindedness. And double-mindedness invariably leads to unbelief. So fear, fear is where it starts, but then it keeps escalating. Fear. And so whatever area I have fear in will be an area that I feel insecure in. And if I don't fix it with the word and by running into the arms of God and finding help there, then fear will lead to insecurity. Insecurity will lead to double-mindedness. Double-mindedness makes it difficult for me to believe God in that area. These are things we must nip in the bud. The whole idea of not letting a seed grow is to quickly recognize what is happening and then run for help. Run for help to either God, run for help to someone who is godly, run for help to the word. At the end of the day, God uses others, God uses his spirit, and God uses his word. Any questions on these three before we go on? These are unseen things, guys. We only see them once they manifest. Okay, next one. Slander laced. Slander laced accusation. As an accusation that has slander in it. Slander laced accusation is the seed for affliction. Is the seed for affliction. I have personally experienced this. Is the seed for affliction. 
because it couples you with the accuser. He's known as, Satan is sometimes known as the accuser of the brethren. When Jacob actively begins to slander or accuse someone else, particularly believers, then he is now running a two-legged race with the accuser of the brethren. And once Jacob slanders or accuses someone without any valid reason, you then begin to suffer this thing called affliction because you are way too close to the accuser of the brethren. One of the stories in the Old Testament that highlights this is Numbers chapter 12, where Miriam and her brother begin to, not her, Miriam and Aaron begin to uh, slanderously accuse Moses of being married to Zipporah and saying that he isn't the right guy. Why should God only speak to him? That's in verse 1. In verse 12, she's suddenly afflicted with leprosy. Her skin turns white. I've done this to people and I've suffered immensely. And it did not stop till I went and told them that I had slandered them and accused them. But thank God I knew the key. eh? I prayed throughout the night, praying that this affliction would go away and it did not. I repented of it. It did not. Finally, I had to go to the person and say to the person, I have slandered you. Will you forgive me? Or will you pray for me? And the person forgave me and prayed for me and the affliction immediately lifted. The affliction lifted within 20 or 25 seconds. This is what I mean by knowing these seed and keys so that many things in your life ends without even having to do any praying. My experience shouldn't be the criteria that we base this on, but I'm just giving you an an anecdote to explain that these things are real. Um, there isn't much difference, except that uh, when I say slander-laced accusation, I mean, it, it, it's, you're now publicly accusing someone. You are going around saying something about somebody publicly, at least gossip, it's between you and me. But now I'm going telling people, hey, did you hear about... It's very similar, but there is something that Satan does where he picks on things that are in your life, and some of it may be true, but he starts, starts accusing you. Zechariah 3 is a classic example where there's Joshua the high priest standing on one side, the angel of God on one side, Satan on one side, and Satan is accusing him. He's called the accuser of the brethren. He still tries to accuse us, but every time he tries to accuse us before God, he suddenly has to confront the blood of Christ and it's freshly slain blood. So I'm not saying that accusations have to be valid before you use them. Sometimes accusations are valid, but there must be great shown. Because accusations are accusations where the intent is, can I bring this person down? That's the point of accusation, right? Can I bring this person down? So it's very similar to gossip. I was thinking I should remove gossip, but I thought I'd leave that in because it's such a familiar word to us. Jealousy is the seed for demonic oppression. Jealousy is the seed for demonic oppression. This is far more um, nasty than we give it credit for. It's an ancient spirit. Jealousy is seed for demonic oppression. It's an ancient spirit. In 1 Samuel 18, verse 8 to 10, you'll read the story that I mentioned just now about Samuel, uh, about Saul.
What drove Satan to rebellion was also jealousy. Here is the most high God who is receiving all worship. Why should he receive all worship? I will sit on Mount Zion. The king has been installed on Zion and yet Satan says, I will sit on Mount Zion. Jealousy is the seed for demonic oppression. Whenever you're jealous, get rid of it quickly, eh? Because this is so common. Some of the things with these some of, the, some of the problems with these simple things is that they have become so common to human experience that we think it is okay. First Samuel 18, 8-10. Next one. Stinginess is a sp- seed for spiritual disorientation and darkness. Stranger. Stinginess, as in being miserly, as in um, not being generous, is the seed for spiritual disorientation and darkness. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 6.23. If your eye is evil, how great is the darkness within you? He was talking about money. He was talking about treasure. He was talking about where your heart is. He was talking about generosity. In Proverbs 21 verse 9, you see in the New King James Version and the King James Version, the opposite. That if a man has a bountiful eye, how blessed is he? By the same token, if a man has an evil eye, and by evil eye, it didn't mean an eye that looks at you evilly. Because Jesus uses the same phrase in Matthew 20 where he's distributing denarii to his laborers and he says to one laborer, why do you have an evil eye with regard to how much I give this guy? Can't I be generous the way I want to be? An evil eye is an eye that is stingy or miserly. And it is surprising how stinginess brings in spiritual disorientation and darkness. What is the measure of stinginess? It changes from person to person, right? If I think that being generous is moving from 10% to 11%, I would suggest to you that I'm still stingy. It's not percentage. Generosity is the heart of God. Begin to increase in it. Stinginess brings in spiritual disorientation and darkness. An evil eye brings such darkness into a person's life, just as a bountiful eye, as it says in Proverbs 21.9, brings such blessedness. And I'm not talking about offerings, guys. I'm talking about being generous. Any questions before we move on? Okay, next one. Unforgiveness. I know you know enough about this one. Unforgiveness is the seed for spiritual quarantine and toxicity. Spiritual quarantine and toxicity. As in once you don't forgive, once I don't forgive you for what you may have done to me, or what, if you don't forgive me for what I've done to you, then till you do, you are not usable. You are quarantined. Because there is nothing that I have in common with Jesus when I refuse to forgive you. There is nothing that I have in common with Jesus when I refuse to forgive you. That's one side of it. So I'm quarantined saying, hey Jacob, if you forgive, I've... It's not that, I mean, there is a scripture which says, 
Forgive us our sins as we forgive those that sin against us. I mean, if you were to flip it around, do not forgive me my sins if I do not forgive those that have sinned against me. That's not what it says. But the point is, unforgiveness causes me to be spiritually quarantined and then leave that alone. It begins to develop toxicity inside me, which uh, I know you've heard enough about, so I won't go there. Should I forgive if someone hasn't asked for forgiveness? Absolutely. Why? Because God does that. When does a person experience forgiveness? When he asks for it. When do you give it? As soon as you can. Here's a subtle one. Control is the seed for self-reliance. It's very subtle. You know, if you went into the Bible and googled or searched for the word control, you'll only find words that have to do with self-control or someone controlling something in a good way. Control is a word that we have developed recently. I don't know what the right word is in the Bible. But you'll find stories where people, like for instance in Luke 12, where the man decided, hmm, now that I've done well, let me see what I can do. I can build some barns, and then I can build bigger barns, and then I can do this, and then if I do this, then my life is secure. That is the whole idea of control. If Can I secure my life by taking care of this, 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 and that, so that in the eventuality that that happens, I can do this and this, and it'll all be secure. Control is the seed for self-reliance. Control is the seed for self-reliance. And it leads to delusion and the neglect of faith. It leads to delusion and the neglect of faith. It leads to delusion and the neglect of faith. As in, one thinks one has everything under control. And it's an absolute delusion because you have nothing under control. And it leads to a neglect of faith because... The opposite of faith is not fear. The opposite of faith is self-reliance. What did God challenge people on always in the Old Testament? He did not say you were afraid. He said you did not rely on me. Self-reliance is the opposite of faith. It's not fear that is the opposite of faith. Fear hollows faith. But self-reliance is the contradiction to faith. It's what we teach our children. Be self-reliant. And then we also expect them to show faith. This is going completely on a detour. But one of the things that any martial art does to your child is it teaches your child how to be tremendously self-reliant for his or her own security and protection. And there is a good side to it, and there is a really detrimental side to it. But that's a topic for another day. That was supposed to be martial arts. Deception is the seed for concealment for concealment concealment as in when I begin to live a life that is steeped in deception 
either the world or sometimes God or the enemy, I don't know who, throws a blanket over me where I will stay concealed and will never see the light of day or light of breakthrough or light of emergence or light of God. This is what happened to Jacob. Jacob was highly deceptive. And so every time he would deceive and he would try to control his circumstances by thinking, if I do this and do this, then Esau may react this way. He would plan things so far ahead. He was a control freak. And he was deceptive. And his deception ended concealing him in Laban's land for 20 years. 20 wasted years. That marriage should have taken 20 days, man. It took him 20 years. Deception conceals you. Deception is the seed for concealment. Jacob deceived and stayed concealed in Laban's house. Any questions before we go on? Uh, Deception is using lies to, uh, on one hand, pave the way for you, and on the other hand, deprive someone of a benefit. It's both. Lies would sometimes be just to get out of something. Here there's a double whammy. It is pave, uh, create a path for you and deprive someone of something in the process. And Jacob did that many, many times. Next one. Complaint. Complaint. Complaint or discontentment, which is often where complaint comes from, is the seed for coveting or craving. Where when I complain, when I'm discontent, it's only a matter of time where I start craving or coveting. Um... And when I don't get what I crave or covet, now I begin to step into envy and bitterness. James chapter 4 verse 1 talks about this where it says, Why do you fight? Why do you quarrel? It is because you desire things and when you don't get them, you don't like it. You ask amiss, you get bitter, you start fighting. So complaint and discontentment. It is not that you don't take your complaint to God. Take your complaint to God. David did this often. Write your own psalm. It's really helpful. Both Val and um, Jane will endorse your psalms. But at the end of the day, after you write your psalms and get done with your complaining, uh, don't go into discontentment because discontentment will eventually lead to coveting. Coveting is wanting something right now and wanting it at whatever cost. Craving then leads to bitterness and envy when it is not met. And unfortunately, because we don't have the power to turn stones into bread, you can crave for something and not get it. And it just leads to uh, envy and bitterness. And that then brings in its own uh, bitter pill. Because bitter envy, this is a nasty one again, bitter envy is the seed for confusion and the demonic. Where do we see it? We see it in James chapter 3 verse 16. 
complaint is the seed for discontentment. You'll see that in Exodus 16.3 and many times in Israel's life where Israel would begin to complain. The complaint would lead to discontentment. The discontentment would lead to bitterness. Bitterness against God. Bitterness against Moses. Bitterness against Joshua. And bitterness and envy would bring in all kinds of confusion and would bring in serpents. James 3.16 very clearly says, where there is bitter envy, there is always confusion, things which are sensual, and that which is demonic. Guys, remember this. Just to put a small mark on it. Sexual discontentment also goes this route of coveting and craving. Next one, pride. Pride is the seed for divine resistance. This is one of the few things that God resists. Like when you read the word resist, it's a sense of a a soldier taking a stand against the enemy. So every time I walk in pride, there is divine resistance to my progress. There's divine resistance to my progress. It's in James chapter uh, 4 verse 6. I was reading uh, something by C.S. Lewis on pride and he says, pride is always competitive. It is always competitive. It will always compete. It will always compete. If a guy drives a little faster than you, you've got to show that next turn, you'll drive a little faster. It doesn't matter what happens. It competes. Pride competes. After reading that article by C.S. Lewis yesterday, I was thinking to myself, Father, I'd like to lose this desire to compete. Because competition, when you lose or win, you get critical. I want to lose the ability to compete. I don't want to compete. Except with Toronto. But otherwise, don't want to compete. Except against the Maple Leafs. Everything else is forgiven. So, Pride is a seed for divine resistance. It, it, is, it has the tendency to compete by nature, and I must lose it. Next one is anger. Anger is a seed for stupidity. Yeah, anger really makes you stupid. Stupidity, contention, and plunder. A man who does not have control of his temper, is like a city without walls, can easily be entered into, can easily be plundered. A man who is angry is a man who is stupid. Literally, some versions say stupid because everything that he builds, he destroys in a day. A man who is angry should be cast out because he will bring contention and discord. The thing is, we Christians are brilliant at disguising anger. Only our mothers, our fathers, our sisters, brothers, and our spouses, and occasionally our kids, are ever exposed to our anger. And it comes out in these nasty flares that just shoot out and can be withdrawn. I want that gone from my life so that nobody near me gets singed. It won't, it, it won't be you. 
Because I'm supposed to take care of you. I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to be nice to you. It won't be people that I know. It will always be people that I know I cannot lose that will suffer. Destroy it out of your life because it brings stupidity, it brings contention and it plunders you. A man who does not have control over his temper is like a city without walls. Anybody can enter anytime, take anything, put anything in. Oh, I'm glad my mom didn't turn up today. She'd have looked at me like, really, you're talking about this? She was supposed to be here today. She's postponed her visit by a month. I'll preach some other sermon that day. So... (laughs) Yeah, guys, remove this from your life, because eh? it's always the ones closest to us that bear it. It's never the ones that you are in charge over. It's always the ones that, you know, won't disappear if you get angry, or won't leave the church, or won't leave the company, or won't sue you, or won't take you to small courts. Those are the ones who bear it. Complacency. Complacency is the seed for loss and the sabotage of your destiny. There's this horrible verse in Zephaniah 1, uh, verse 12 and 13. And God is saying this. God is saying that I've heard what you're saying. You're saying that I won't do good, I won't do evil, that I'm neutral. Well, I want you to know that because of your complacent attitude, everything you have, you're going to lose. Your homes, your vineyards, your wells, everything you've planted will go away because of your complacency. Because you've decided that you will live your lives neutral, so much so that you're even saying that I, God, am neutral. I won't do you any harm. I won't do you any good. Zephaniah 1.12. What a powerful verse. I read that and I thought to myself, nuts. Another word for complacency is mediocrity. One of the easiest ways to avoid being spotted for complacency is to make sure that you never hang out with passionate people. Because passion will always expose mediocrity. The easiest way to avoid being labeled or being exposed for mediocrity is if I can hang out with people just like me. Because passion will expose complacency and mediocrity. It's only when you stand next to something bright that you realize that you're wearing blue and black. Proverbs 1.32 says your mediocrity will kill you. I taught something ages ago called Tabera. If you ever get a chance, go listen to it on the website, Tabera. Tabera is when the fire of God fell, and it fell along the outskirts of the camp. And you realize that the ones around the outskirts of Israel's camp were the riffraff, as some versions say, that were complacent, that were dabbling in this and that, that were a mixed crowd. And that is where the fire fell. And God will not, after the passion of the cross will not allow his children to continue in complacency or in mediocrity. One of two things will happen. Either he will say, 
I've got to ignite you because I cannot withstand lukewarmness. Or he will say, there will be loss and a sabotage of your destiny. is one or the other. Because he hates this. He will do something to ignite you. Because lukewarmness and him don't get along well together. Three or four more and we're done. Legalism. Legalism. As in, when I exalt or, um, tra- uh, uh, or when I value the traditions of men, when I value my own culture, when I value my experience, when I value my thinking above the word, that's legalism. It's Christ plus something. Legalism is a seed for dullness. Legalism is the seed for dullness. Galatians 3.3, Paul says, Hey guys, what happened to you? Who bewitched you? Don't you know that everything you've gotten came by the Spirit and by hearing of faith? Why is it that you've walked into legalism now? How is it that you've become dull? Galatians 3.3 Legalism brings dullness and that dullness leads to greater stubbornness. Legalism is not some religious ritual. Legalism can happen to the best of us. It's stiff-neckedness. And the stiff-neckedness comes because Jacob thinks that his experience, his thoughts, his present understanding, or his culture is now exalted above the word. That this is higher than the word. It doesn't matter what you tell me. This is what I believe because this is what my experience has taught me. How do you battle legalism? You battle legalism by always being open to the fact that what you know today may be incomplete and that tomorrow someone may introduce something else that is better, that is wiser, that is more accurate. And if I don't live like that, and especially as we get older, if we don't live like that, this awaits us. What an encouraging message, huh? Some Sundays, we'll have to go through this, guys. Rebellion. Rebellion is the seed for dislocation. Rebellion is the seed for dislocation. Rebellion is the seed for dislocation. (coughs) Genesis chapter 3, verse 24. Once they rebelled, they had to be put outside of the location that was planned for them before the foundation of time. They had to be put outside, and an angel had to be put at the gate so that they could not enter back into Eden. Rebellion or the breaking of order is seed for dislocation. Genesis 3.24 Dislocates you. That's why keeping order is so brilliant. It locates you where you were supposed to be even before the foundations of the earth. Rebellion dislocates you. And once you're dislocated, then the serpent has rights. Because it says in Ecclesiastes 10.8, break the hedge and the serpent will bite. Compromise is the seed for blindness and disgrace. Compromise is the seed for blindness and disgrace. The Bible says when a man takes a bribe, when a man perverts justice, when a man compromises, what happens is that he now deliberately chooses blindness. He blinds himself to what is true. Uh, 
Deuteronomy 16, I think verse 19 or 19 verse 16 talks about it. Compromise is the seed for blindness. Deuteronomy 16, 19. There was this king called Nahash in uh, Judges chapter 11. Nahash, you know what he would do? He would go and he would blind people. He would gouge out their right eye. Israel gathers, 7,000 Israelites gather at Jabesh Gilead and they say, uh, we'll come out to you. You can take whatever you want. And he says, okay, you come out to me. Here's a treaty I'll make with you. You come out to me and I'll take out your right eye. Every man, woman, and child, I'll take out your right eye because I want to bring disgrace on you. And they say, give us seven days and we'll let you know. And if nothing works, we'll come out. And then they send word to Saul. Saul has the Spirit of God come down upon him. And he says, he cuts up an oxen and he sends the oxen to every tribe and he says, if you guys don't turn up here and fight with me, this will be the condition that all of you will have to bear as this oxen bore. They all come, he goes, fights them, defeats Nahash. It's such a remote story that most of us don't remember, which is why I said it. But compromise causes blindness. And um, stand against this, see? It blinds you. Stand against it. Because once the blindness comes, disgrace will follow. But stand against it. Do not compromise. Do not compromise. Do not compromise with your taxes. Do not compromise with the truth. Do not compromise with little things that have to do with the law and big things of the law. Do not compromise. Do not compromise. Daniel is brilliant at this. Keith Green brought out an album long ago called No Compromise. You should listen to the songs on that Keith Green album. Every one of them was about not changing or perverting or distorting that which is God. A culture that tolerates will also begin to be tolerating of God. We live in a culture that is very tolerant. Every time a culture becomes this tolerant, people in that culture become tolerant of God. Not obedient to God, tolerant of God. As in, okay, we will humor you also. But don't get too godish on us now. Last two. Scorn. Scorn is the seed for barrenness. Scorn is the seed for barrenness. Scorn is the seed for barrenness. What you scorn or what you despise, you will not birth. Michael or Michael, the, David's wife, scorned him. Was barren. Esau scorned his birthright. Was barren for the rest of his life, even though he sought it with tears. Scorn is the seed for barrenness. I'm talking about barrenness in terms of not being able to produce things in your life in the area that you despise something in. There were many things I despised with regard to church. And Acts 29 has suffered because of that. Because I, as the pastor, despise certain things about big churches or the way prophecy is done or things like that. And because of that, this church has suffered. Because whatever you despise, you will not birth. Sorry? Whatever, uh, because I've despised things, I have prevented them from happening at Acts 29. If I have despised big churches, Acts 29 has struggled to grow. If I have despised a certain way of doing things that I despised just because I didn't like the person who was doing it, 
then whatever I run begins to get affected because whatever you scorn, you will not possess. In that area, you will not be fruitful. If it is in the word, it doesn't matter how I mutilate it, you must believe it. God will judge me for mutilating it, but you must believe it so that it can be yours. If you despise prosperity because preachers teach prosperity in distorted, perverse ways, then you will not be able to enjoy what prosperity may look like here on earth. If you despise prophecy because there have been prophets that have abused and um, made money out of it and peddled their gifts, then you will not benefit. These are things that are already God provided. It is sad that the ones using that have given it such a bad rap. But we must now be wiser and look beyond them. Last one. Isolation. Isolation. Isolation is the seed. Isolation is the seed for the cutting off of wisdom. Isolation is the seed for the cutting off. As in, you cut yourself off from wisdom when you try to, when you choose to live an isolated life. You cut yourself off from wisdom. Proverbs 18.1, depending on the version you read, it says, a man who isolates himself is a man who strives against wisdom. He does not want to connect with wisdom. Proverbs 18.1 Isolation is like, um, is like damming a, a stream so that the water doesn't get through you. It just cuts you off from wisdom. Now it makes sense why it says in Proverbs that in a multitude of counselors there is wisdom. Any questions, guys? Um, this seems, 19, uh, 19 of these things seems like a lot, and uh, trust me, there's at least 200. And so we haven't done 10%. So um, we leave it at this just to give you an idea of how this works. And now it becomes easy for me to stop plunder, to get the Spirit of God flowing over me and helping me. Because immediately after the verse which says, God resists the proud, it says, He gives grace to the humble, and the Spirit of God is my helper. It um, prevents me from breaking order, because I know that when I break, I dislocate myself. It prevents me from nursing bitter envy, because I know that it is only a matter of time where confusion and the demonic comes. I'm not even going into things like sexual immorality or adultery because that's a duh thing. I mean, to go into sexual immorality and adultery and to think that you can come out of it without being stained is uh, foolish. The Bible speaks about it at least 40 times, out of which 20 are in the Proverbs itself. So I'm not even going into those obvious sins. I'm talking about these 
little seeds that we sow without thinking on a regular basis. Any questions before I conclude? My conclusion is, so how do we deal with this? Very easy. Really very easy. The great thing about Jesus and um, what's his name was right when he called his book Bondage Breaker. What was the guy's name? Anderson. Jesus is a marvelous bondage breaker. He breaks things very, very easily. So once you know which area, let's say it's anger uh, that I am dealing with, then first I go to Romans 2.4. And in Romans 2.4 it says, it's the kindness of God that brings someone to repentance. Start there, guys. Remember, you're not dealing with a judge. You're not dealing with a lawgiver. You're not dealing with a um, faceless surgeon who just wants to remove an ulcer. You're dealing with a father. And that's where it starts. And so you go to the father and you first begin in Romans 2.4 where it says receive his kindness because his kindness leads to repentance. That's where you start. So father, I am so sorry for flaring against my mom or my sister knowing that they'll always be around. They can't disown me. They can't disappear. I am so sorry for being angry with them. Let's take an example because that's happened in the past in my life. I'm so sorry. But Father, before, I, 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 don't, I don't want to be just forgiven for this. I want it removed from my life because this is not who you are. I want it removed from my life. And so Father, I come to you and I think of the millions of times you could have been at least a little angry with me yet every time you could have what did you meet me with with tremendous kindness like the prodigal father who's running down the lane because he can see his son at a distance kindness is where it starts and then once i go to romans 2 4 i go to second corinthians 7 10 where it says real repentance has remorse in it has sorrow in it real repentance has sorrow in it but that sorrow comes only after i see the kindness of god and now I begin to sorrow that I have treated someone made in the image of God in a way that diminished them, that dissed them, that brought disdain on them. doesn't matter whether it's your mother, father, friend, stranger, the guy who did not give you good service for the money you paid. How can I tear down someone made in the image of God? Father, I am so sorry because this is remorse that is genuine because repentance carries in it godly sorrow. 2 Corinthians 7.10. That's the second part. If those two parts are met, then it becomes super easy because now you're like really skiing down this amazing slope, which I've never done in my life and don't intend to, but I watch it and I think, man, this must be fun with the wind blowing through your locks of your hair, which also I don't have, but I imagine. And so now it is, you've, you've done those two things. The third thing is now... Uh, in submission, resist the devil. In submission. Now that you have submitted to God, resist the devil. Resist the devil. Resist the devil. Because God has the ability to catch that snake hidden behind the crates and throw it out even before you get rid of the crates. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Because you've just sprayed this amazing thing called snake spray. And it makes snakes slither away. Like bear spray. And so now, in submission to God, resist the devil. Father, I am done with this anger thing. I remember telling my sister some years ago. I told her, Reba, I, will, I give you my word. 
I will never be angry with you again. I will never raise my voice against you. Because she was so hurt that time that I did it. She didn't say anything because I was in Bristol. She didn't know what to say. But I could see the hurt on her face. eh? She just walked away. That made me feel worse. Because at least when you're angry and someone's angry back, you feel that it cancels each other out. When the person is still nice to you, now it was like heaping coals on my head. And I remember going and sitting her down and saying, I am so sorry, I've done this to you before. And it ain't going to happen again. And surprisingly, by the grace of God, I've kept my word, man. And it's only the grace of God. I've kept my word. Trust the Holy Spirit, man. Trust the Holy Spirit. One of the things I've learned is when I am not able to do it, there is someone called the Holy Spirit and he is God and he lives in me. I must trust that he can change me. I must trust that he can change me. Why is it that he can only change a smoker who has a 20-year addiction? Why can't he change you? He can change us. It's amazing how we trust God to change other people, but we don't trust the Holy Spirit enough to change a habit in you. Trust the Holy Spirit. He is God. He can change you. He can change you. So now that we resist the devil, the snake leaves before the crates are taken down. Trust the Holy Spirit for this. There is nobody interested, nobody interested in making you like Jesus as much as the Spirit of God. This is his life work. Can I bring out of you a blemishless bride for the bridegroom. If necessary, confess your sins to one another. As in, go, talk to somebody. Tell them, hey, I had this problem. Hey, guys, I'm telling you something. There's never been a sin in my life that I haven't gone and confessed to somebody else. It's been, it's been, the, it's been, it's been what certifies my victory because it is biblical. There has never been a sin in my life that I have not beaten. That God did not help me with, but I had to bring it out into the light. You don't know how embarrassing it is when you're a pastor and you have to bring sins out into the light. But find people and you will always find people who won't write a blog about it. And you can then bring it out into the open saying, Here, oh God. And then go and say to Sheldon, Here, Sheldon, this is where I've been failing, man. Every sin that has been beaten has always found light in being confessed to someone else. I'm telling you the God honest truth. God is my witness that I'm not trying to pull a fast one on you. These are biblically certified ways of victory. Then, now that the snake has been removed from the room, rise up as many times as you need to cultivate like an athlete, like a soldier, from Second Timothy 2, verse 2 to 5, where it says, uh, like an athlete, run according to the rules, like a soldier, do not get entangled in civilian affairs, like a farmer, wait patiently, again and again and again, go and take down those crates, go take those cardboard boxes out, throw them, do they come back again? Get up again. Go throw them out. Hey, I've said this before. If you had a $100 note in your hand and the wind blows and it blows out of your hand, what will you do? Go after it. Pick it up. It happens again. What will you do? 
go after it pick it up it happens a third time trust me you won't come to the conclusion ah if it blew three times it must be blowing in the wind and you start singing bob dylan no you would still go after it pick it up again the point being that it doesn't matter how many times i have to clear that room of crates i will do it because i cannot afford cannot afford the serpent and its brood to come back and build its lair there and so do it again and again like an athlete like a farmer like a soldier disciplined habits that dismantle old strongholds and build godly fortresses why so that the world may benefit and so that no one is harmed